Okay, this evening we are continuing our study in 1 Peter. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I've been entitled to study tonight, uh, Heirs Together of the Grace of Life. Heirs Together of the Grace of Life. Last week we concluded our study of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we covered the submission of servants to their masters, and the key phrase there, as unto the Lord. And we've noted several times here in our study, really, uh, one of Peter's underlying themes, and frankly, it should be an underlying theme of our life on a daily basis, is to do all things as unto the Lord or for the Lord's sake. In other words, for his glory alone. That should be our theme of life as we go through it. Just as these people, as we read in that devotional earlier, uh, we know that they did it for the glory of God because they trusted in God. We're to render acceptable service to God. We're his servants. We're bought with the blood of his son. And as Robert Layton, the Puritan, stated, a sincere Christian may elevate his low calling by being conscious of God, observing his will, and intending his glory in it. We observe the will of God, we intend his glory in fulfilling that will. No matter what our calling, even if it should be lead us into persecution or suffering, we are to endure it for his namesake. That's the goal. We endure all things for his namesake. And as we quoted last time from Christ himself, the true suffering servant, as he was called, he said this, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my namesake. Just be sure your, the accusations against you are false and you will be blessed. Otherwise, you're getting what you deserve, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2.20. Indeed, as Peter pointed out there in verse 21 of chapter 2, we are called of God to follow our Savior's example of submission under suffering for the glory of God. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. As I said last time, note, he didn't say take up your pillow and follow me, or take up your picnic basket and follow me. So following our Savior will not be a picnic, at least not... uh, very nearly uh, any, any time in our life. It may be some good times, but we, like our Lord, um, must look to the ultimate prize, the high calling of God, the high calling of God in Christ. And he'll make whatever suffering we endure worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be worth it all. The sufferings of this present world are worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us, Paul tells us. So that's the attitude we have to have, even if we, we don't face any suffering. But if we do, we can trust God to take care of the circumstances. So we must, like our Lord, daily commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, as it says there in chapter 2, verse 23. We commit ourselves to God who judges righteously. Excuse me. And concerning what Christ did for us on the cross, uh, as we see in verse 24, we need to die to sin and to live for righteousness. I remember Peter quotes from Isaiah 53 and verses 5 and 6, that is by Christ's stripes, his pain, his suffering, his death, ultimately his resurrection, that we are spiritually healed of our sin sickness. What a debt we owe to him, beloved. What a debt. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That in all those things, we are blessed because he gave it all for us. And lastly, finally, we looked into Peter's symbolic statement that we, like dumb sheep, have gone astray. And by now, God's grace... By, by God's grace, we have returned, there's the word he used, returned to the shepherd and overseer or bishop of our souls. In verse 25, 
And that key word there, as he mentioned last time, is returned. It's a picture of repentance. We return to God. Turning our back on sin and turning back to our creator and our God and yielding to his direction and his oversight of our life. He is the shepherd of our life. <clears throat> Jesus is a good shepherd who gave his life for us, his sheep, as he says in John 10, verse 11. And yet, as we know, he is a risen Savior and shepherd. He's a risen Savior and shepherd who still guides his flock. And so we look to him, beloved. We look to him. We follow his lead. We do not stray from his will. And we will be blessed. We will be blessed as we focus on him and follow in his steps, running with patience, that race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus above all else. Jesus is the good shepherd, and we follow him. And in of course, as we mentioned, I think, a couple weeks ago, uh, we are, as, as elders, and any elder in the church, is a good shepherd and under-shepherd to that good shepherd who is to care for the sheep and to lead them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As he promised in John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, if we heed his voice and follow him, it's a sign that we're his. First of all, it, it, it's a testimony to the world that we're his, and we shall never perish, nor we shall be snatched out of his hand, but instead we'll enjoy eternal life with him. That's the comfort and encouragement that comes from focusing on Christ, following his footsteps, enduring all things for him, is that assurance that we are his and that we will have eternal life. So we're going to move on now to Peter's final thoughts on submission before he moves on to his third main theme of suffering, which obviously he's touched on a little bit here in chapter 2. But we're going to finish up with submission. And his focus here on the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, which we'll cover tonight, is on submission within the family unit, uh, which is God's building block for society. Okay, So first of all, we'll look at verses 1 through 4, and we'll, we'll look at what's called the hidden man. I think that King James is the hidden man. Literally, I think it's a hidden person, which means a man or a woman. Okay, The hidden person of the heart. Holy Spirit inspired both Peter and Paul to write concerning the roles of husbands and wives and children within a family structure, that we all might walk in a manner pleasing to God. So it's he, God our creator, who instituted both marriage and family. And as we said a minute ago, it's the building block of society. So it's important. We should look on this as important. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And we'll stop there. So, Peter reveals here the importance of submission, not only to rulers and masters, but of wives to their husbands in the Lord. And this is obviously uh, an important issue because the family unit, again, is the foundation of society, and that should reflect out to all other uh, organizations above. We are to set the example within our families. (coughs) Excuse me. Note, first of all, the word likewise. Everybody looks at that verse and says, oh, does that mean that women are supposed to be like the slaves mentioned in chapter 2? No, that's not what that likewise means. It's not implying that wives are to be compared with slaves. Rather, it's simply saying that wives, as a class of people, are also must learn submission within the family unit. It's based, again, upon God's order, not upon uh, some misogynist, you know, patriarch, patriarchal man. It's based upon God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I would have you know 
that the head of every man is Christ, the head of, of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. That's the scripture. And I think that's important, you know, as we're in this society that we're in today, this uh, feministic uh, society that's throwing morals out the door. When we read portions of scripture like this, uh, you're gonna, obviously going to get an immediate reaction saying, well, that's, that's what you said. You know, that's, that's your words. That's not my words or that's not my law. We need to remember this book, which was written by over 40 men, primarily men, obviously, that we know of, no women that I can think of that wrote, wrote a portion of scripture. Yes, and they could say, well, all men wrote that book, so it must be you know, their idea. It's not women's idea. Who authored the book? Who is the author of the book? All 66 chapters. The Holy Spirit, who is God, okay? So we're not arguing here with men that wrote this because they liked it, it sounded good, it was culturally appropriate. We're looking at God, who before the foundation of the world determined what this world would be like and what would happen in this world, and who ordained that these books should be written and preserved and protected and brought down to this century in, in time. God wrote this. So if they have an argument with God, go right ahead. <laughs> Argue away. I don't think you're going to get anywhere. So that's important that we point that out. This is God's word, the Holy Spirit of God, the, the member of the Trinity, ordained or authored this book. He may have used men's language, style, you know, uh, culture at that time to put a flavor to it in certain sense, but every word of this scripture is ordained of God. That's what we have to remember when we're sharing it with someone. It's not our opinion. It's not some you know, guy who wrote it 100, 200, 300, 1,000 years ago because he liked it, because it was culture appropriate. No, it's God who wrote it. And we need to keep that in mind as we deal with this subject particularly, which obviously is a sensitive subject today. And we also know that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. Okay, Notice that text there. The idea here is to support the marriage relationship, not simply subjecting women to all men, but also, as one author pointed out, it may have been common in certain places in Peter's time, for, especially as the gospel was first being presented, it may have been common for women to have responded to the gospel and come to faith in Christ before their husbands. Okay? That is quite possible at that time. If their husbands were strongly opposed to their wives' newfound faith, there may have been a temptation for the women to seek out an associate or associate with Christian men for spiritual support. He's speaking out against that here. Peter is teaching that, he, that she, she here is to be submissive to her husband, not other men. Okay, that's important. And by her faithfulness to her husband, she can be used by God to point him to Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 10 through 16. Paul's classic passage here on the principle, principles of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 10 through 16. <clears throat> Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, stop. Who inspired him to write this? Notice how he's, he's being deprecating here. He says, the Lord didn't give this to me directly, but he's saying, he's saying not I, not, the Lord is, is in a sense, uh, speaking through him, obviously through the Holy Spirit, but he, Paul's being, you know, Lord didn't give me a direct command here. This is just something I'm, I'm writing. Well, obviously Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. 
And then verse 12, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if the brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. Danger, warning, classic Presbyterian passage right here on infant baptism. No, okay? But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife, and of course we know only the Holy Spirit can save either husband or wife. Okay, going back to our text, <clears throat> Paul states, in, looking at that text, Paul states in that passage, there's no guarantee that a Christian wife or Christian husband will reach their spouse for Christ. But they, the believer, are not to be the ones to dissolve the marriage. Now, neither Paul nor Peter, of course, is encouraging or supporting marriage of believers to unbelievers. But speaking in these situations, which was more likely at that time, because obviously the gospel is going forth in a new you know, message to people, uh, he's speaking in those situations where one of the spouses becomes a Christian after the marriage has begun. Okay, that's what he's speaking of. It's important here for wives, uh, what's important to point out here for wives is their consistent, this is what he's talking about, a consistent godly conduct, which will testify of the grace of God in their life and, along with their words, will point their husbands to Christ. So that's important that there's a, a dual ministry there, ministry of the word, sharing the gospel, and also ministry of life that reflects Christ in their life. We are to fulfill, whether you're a husband or wife, we are to fulfill our role within the family, as Paul emphasized in Colossians, and Peter does too, in the Lord. We spoke about that early on. We're to do all things in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. See also Colossians 3.18. Now, this does not mean the wives are to be silent, but rather than browbeat their husbands with the gospel, they are to live so they cannot deny, cannot deny what a difference Christ has made in their life. As John MacArthur put it, the loving, gracious submission of a Christian woman to her unsaved husband is the strongest evangelistic tool she has. Okay, you can share the gospel night and day, seven days a week, but if your life is totally you know, contrary to the gospel, then your husband will not see that in your life, see the difference he has made. So the lesson here, ladies, is for us, for you, to seek to conduct yourselves in purity and reverence towards God, regardless of the spiritual condition of your husband. Of course, that's true of the husbands. We don't have any excuse to say, well, because my spouse is not living for the Lord, therefore I don't have to live for the Lord. And, or my children aren't living for the Lord, so what difference does it make? No, we have a responsibility. If we are the Lord's, we have a responsibility to live for the glory of God and to be an instrument in his hand to reflect his glory to others. There's no excuse for any of us in this situation. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. In fact, Genesis 3.16 tells us that submission of the wife to her husband was ordained by God. Again, it's not an invention of man. So regardless of the spiritual state of the husband, we are to recognize it as part of God's order, that this is what God would have. The husband would be the head of the home, and the wife would submit to him. In verses 3 and 4 that we read, Lest there be some misunderstanding here, Peter emphasizes the attitude of the woman's heart in this matter, not just her outward actions. First, let's be clear that many have twisted this passage unjustly to support their own particular religious distinctive. I think Brian mentioned this in another portion of CLA. Um, to quote Simon Kistemacher's commentary on this, he said, Peter does not say that a woman should refrain from adorning herself. He writes, no prohibition 
against cosmetics or wearing attractive apparel. Peter's emphasis is not on prohibition, but on a proper sense of values. Again, the key is focusing on the positive, focusing on the glory of God, not on let's fight against certain negatives or come up with a negative thing. And Paul gives a similar testimony or exhortation in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. In fact, let's turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. There it is. Okay. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And it goes, it goes on from there to talk about a woman being silent in submission, not permitting to teach in the church. But the point here is that we each have our role here. The men should be praying, leading in prayer, okay, uh, without doubt, without wrath or without doubting. And women also should adorn themselves modestly and uh, looking for the professing godliness with good works. We're to profess our faith, not only in words, but by our life and by our actions. <clears throat> Excuse me. The key here is an inward godliness is reflected in outward life. Not fancy clothes, not hair, not jewelry, but good works reflects who we are to the world, whether we're man or woman. God's not impressed with overdressed, bejeweled women uh, who vainly seek attention for themselves. That's not what God is impressed with. In fact, turn with me back to an Old Testament text that really sets this straight. And again, of course, in these Old Testament texts, God's speaking to Israel and the women of Israel. But it can be applied today. Uh, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. This is God's uh, approach or God's view of women who put on a show but don't have the right attitude in their heart. Okay, uh, Isaiah chapter 3 and verses 16 through 24. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. Now, remember, these are the people of God. These are supposed to be women of God representing God through the nation of Israel. And walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, and the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes, and so shall it be. Instead of a sweet smell, there shall be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girdling of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty in the war. So God's judgment is upon those who pretend to be his and yet are putting on an outward show and really aren't in heart living for God. They're putting on a show to look for the world to look at them and to admire them. So it's important we look at the proper attitude here. Uh, the feminist attitude, feministic attitude, a Christian woman should not have, but rather should have that inward spiritual attractiveness, as one commentator put it. Again, the key words are there back in our text. In verse 4, the last phrase, which tells us that such conduct, a gentle, quiet, godly spirit, is what? Very precious, very precious in the sight of God. Very precious in the sight of God. So, whatever you do, ladies, do it as unto the Lord. You will be precious in the sight of God. 
That's your goal. And that's important that we keep that in mind that, again, we're looking to please God, to be precious, to be pleasing, to be honoring to him, not to fulfill our dreams, our desires, our, or to appeal to the world in one sense or the other. Okay, let's move on now to what we'll call an Old Testament example, daughters of Sarah in verses 5 and 6. Old Testament example. <clears throat> so Peter turns, as he does often, obviously, because when Peter was writing this, what did he have? Did he have the New Testament? No, he only had the Old Testament, so that's what he refers to, and he particularly likes to go, of course, to Isaiah, but he also uses other portions of the Old Testament. He refers back now to a, Christian's, a, a, a Christian woman's proper role using an Old Testament example here in verses 5 and 6. Let's read those two verses. <clears throat> Excuse me, First Peter 3, verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror or fear, literally. Peter's not teaching some new precept here, okay, for women to follow. Rather, these are the same qualities, inner beauty, humility, modesty, submission to one's own husband. They were evident in Old Testament saints as well as they are in New Testament. Sarah, though certainly not perfect, as we know, because we know of her life as is recorded in the Old Testament, and Hannah, Samuel's mother, they're good examples. They come to mind when you think about Old Testament women who stand out at our testimony to women, modern women today. For a Jewish woman... Uh, for, well, first of all, Peter wrote this primarily probably to Jews, but any of, if any of his readers were Jews, they would have held Sarah in high regard. Okay, that would be likely to happen. In fact, for a Jewish woman to be called a daughter of Sarah uh, would have been a nice compliment for them. As a result, a pious and submissive wife would be called a daughter of Sarah or a holy woman or one who trusted in God. Hebrews 11 verse 11 says, We are told that Sarah judged him, judged God, faithful who had promised. We also see, that, of course, that principle in Proverbs 31, verse 30, the, um, the godly woman there. So they were, were not perfect in any way, shape, and form, but they trusted in God. Their testimony as given in Scripture and, and recorded there, of course, in Hebrews, is that they submitted to God, they trusted in God, they judged him faithful. And that's the life that they lived as reflecting their faith in Christ, in God. Again, we see these important words, trusted in God. We all are supposed to do that, but in this particular case, he's describing the role of a woman. They're to trust in God or live in the fear of the Lord, okay, and, and submission to him. These holy women were not perfect in and of themselves, but Peter refers here to their relationship with God. They trusted him. They hoped in his promises, even as you today, beloved. And as one commentator put it, hope in God is true holiness. A genuine hope in God will result in true holiness in your life. These women knew as we should that God would never let them down or fail them, no matter what, so they had a strong confidence in him. Hebrews 10.23 tells us, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. He is faithful. We need to be faithful to him. So remember, in this context, Peter seems to be speaking here to Christian wives who own, whose own husbands are not walking in obedience to, to God's word, either because they're not believers or because they've drifted away from the faith. Therefore, these women need to focus their trust, not in their husbands, but in God, that he might turn the hearts of their husbands while they live not to discourage him from the faith. 
Okay, so there's a, a balance there where they're not trusting in their husband to be perfect. No, they pray for him, but they trust in God and they seek to live a life that is a testimony to their husbands that they might be, see, people might see Christ in them. And that's the important message that's being shared here by Peter. <clears throat> Excuse me. We note here also in verse 6 that Sarah called Abraham Lord or Master. And that if you're like her, you should, will pursue good works and not be afraid of the consequences of your faith, as it says there in verse 6. Now, as Mr. Kistemachter pointed out in his commentary, no married woman in our culture today calls her husband Lord or Master. Is there? <laughs> Careful. Um, and Peter's not insisting on that custom either. He's just looking back at a custom that was in the past. He's simply illustrating how Sarah was submissive to Abram, her husband. The principle involved here, obviously, is that of submission, while the application during Abram's time was shown both verbally and by one's actions. It used to be a common practice here in the United States, especially down south, for children to respond to their parents with, uh, with yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, right? That used to be a, a, a common thing you would, would hear down south in particular, and even up here in the north. Customs change, obviously. Uh, language changes. But the principle of respect and submission remains as a part of God's order. That's what we have to realize. We know that Peter tells them to do what is good and not to be afraid with any terror, or as some translations have it, don't give way to any fear. Don't give way to fear. Point being, it would not be unnatural, really, it wouldn't be unnatural for a woman to be concerned about how an unbelieving husband would treat her, right? It would not be unnatural for her to think that. Yet Peter says here their role is to do what's right in submitting and trusting God to protect them in that situation. Okay, let's move on now to what will, the final phase, I guess the final part of this submissive uh, section, and that is in verse 7, and we'll call that likewise ye husbands, okay? He begins likewise ye husbands. So it's not just the women he's addressing here, but he's also addressing the husbands in verse 7. Just as a wife has a proper role within the family unit, so do the husbands. Well, let's read verse 7. Husbands. Likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. We know that Peter gives husband three exhortations in this verse, okay? Three exhortations. First, he tells them to be considerate or to dwell with them, their lives, wives, with understanding. To be considerate, dwell with them with understanding. And although Peter seems to digress here from his topic of submission, we know that from Paul that there is to be a common submitting to one another in the fear of God among believers, and that's in Ephesians 5.21. So there's not just a submission of the wife to the husband in that role in the family, but as believers we are to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. John MacArthur points out the husband is to submit to the, quote, loving duty of being sensitive to the needs, the fears, and the feelings of his wife, unquote. Peter is challenging Christian husbands in this context to love their wives in a Christian manner, even if they, their wives, are not believers. So we get the opposite picture here. If a woman has an unbelieving husband, they're to love that husband, submit to him, be a testimony to him by, his, by their life. Opposite is true. If your husband is a Christian, the wife's not a Christian, the husband is to demonstrate by his life his love and compassion for her and to point her to Christ as, as he lives out his life. The standards for this are set forth by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, and in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. As Simon Kistemacher points out in his commentary, husbands must love and respect their wives in harmony with God's word. 
in harmony with God's word. Now, secondly, Peter exhorts husbands to show respect to their wives or their wives, give their wives honor. His first reason, which may seem a strange one, is that the wives are the, quote, weaker vessel. This speaks directly to the transgender issue today, especially in sports. I mean, it's, it's amazing how easily the liberal left will deny the truth, even something that's even pointed out in Scripture here, Paul points out, or Peter points out in Scripture, deny the truth that men are physically more able than women when it comes to sports. They're, more, they're, they're built differently by our God's ordained wisdom. We have different muscle structures. And ordinarily, yes, there are exceptions to the rule, but ordinarily, majority of men are stronger structurally than a woman of the same size and age, or same age, let's say, and same build. So that's a truth. That's a truth that Peter points out here. Hundred thousands of years ago, about two thousand years ago, it's still true today. But men throw truth out the door because they don't want to face the truth. What it comes down to is a denial of God's will, a denial of God Himself. And that's what we're seeing in our, in our society today with this transgender issue, especially in men's and women's sports. It's become a real problem. They are the weaker vessel because he speaks primarily of the wife's physical weakness compared to the husband, and therefore her need for what? For protection and for provision. Now, although the husband is the head of the home, yet he is to honor, he is to sustain, he is to protect, and he is to love his wife. Okay, four things there, honor, sustain, protect, and love. In doing so, he makes it easy for her to submit to his leadership. As he fulfills his role, it makes it easy for her to submit. As she fulfills her role, it makes it easy for him to lead. So there's a responsibility on both of us to be fulfilling our, our roles. <clears throat> the second reason husbands are to honor their wives is because they are heirs together of the grace of life. Women experience the same saving grace of God on equal terms with men, Galatians 3.28, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we need to look at things from a spiritual perspective, that we're all one in Christ, therefore we're on equal terms when it comes to our salvation. Within the roles of the family, yes, there are different roles, but again, we each have a responsibility to each other. That's what we need to keep in mind. But our assurance is that we're all one in Christ. This passage here in 1 Peter also speaks of the daily grace which husband and wife equally share from God. Grace is for both of us to live for him. Thirdly, here in this portion, Peter tells husbands that it's necessary for them to give consideration, to give honor and respect to their wives, or their prayers will be hindered. There's a consequence here to not giving their wives consideration, honor, and respect. Now, some commentators believe this is speaking specifically of the Christian husband's prayers for his unbelieving wife, while others believe it speaks more of the prayers of either the husband or wife will be hindered if they disregard God's instructions concerning the marriage relationship. So you can take it either way, but there's an importance that we can't expect God to hear our prayers if we're not living the life we should live, either as a husband or a wife. <clears throat> Excuse me. Perhaps Calvin had the right uh, approach, approach, I guess you might say, when he said this, For God cannot rightly be called upon unless our minds be calm and peaceable. Among strifes and contention, there's no place for prayer. If your marriage is full of contention and strife, there's no place for prayer in that situation. In other words, the husband and wife must be at peace with one another. Fulfilling their respective roles within the marriage if, in love if they would approach the throne of grace and expect an answer. 
You must be of one mind and one heart. God wants husbands and wives to be reconciled so that they can pray together in harmony and enjoy God's blessings. So that's covering these first seven verses is covering this latter point of Peter, second point of Peter, which is submission. Let me just sum, sum things up here as we close. What have we learned? Well, these past few messages have been studying Peter's teaching on the second of his three lessons here in this epistle. This week, we've concluded the study of this second theme with this look at submission within the family unit. And note, Peter doesn't address the role of children. Interesting. Here he is with this submissive uh, message within the family. Doesn't touch children at all. That doesn't mean he doesn't agree with Paul's teachings in Ephesians chapter 6 or Colossians chapter 3. But Peter's writings tend to be more general in nature. You'll see that as we go through 1 Peter and even 2 Peter, he tends to be a little more general. He's not as specific. Uh, that could be because, after all, he was a simple fisherman while Paul was a scholar or a theologian of sorts, so he had maybe more references he could refer to. He likes to be a little bit uh, more explanatory. In any case, Peter's exhortation here in chapter 3 is in line with God's pattern of authority in his creation. He's not telling us something new. It's a message that's been there since creation. The key element of Peter's message on wifely submission is, number one, that she should submit to her own husband. We need to remind ourselves of that, whether he's a Christian or not. Just as a slave is to submit to his master, regardless of how good the master is or how bad he is, just as we as citizens are to submit to government authority, no matter how bad it is, so wives are to submit as unto the Lord. It's not to be a mere formal submission that hides bitter and resentful spirit, but it is to be from the heart, and it should reflect in her purity and her reverence. If a wife should come to faith in Christ before her husband, and he should see it by her attitudes and actions as much as he hears of her faith, he should see a difference in her life, just as the opposite were true. The wife is to adorn herself not merely with fashionable hair, beautiful jewelry, fine clothes, but with the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, as it says in verse 4. Now, that's challenging, challenging for anyone, but it's a challenge that God has given you as women to live with that spirit, a hidden person of the heart. In other words, you have to start in before you can show anything out. There has to be a change within your heart. She's not doing this just to impress her husband uh, by how humble and spiritual she is, nor is she to win some sort of mispiety contest by her you know, extraordinary life. Now, the latter part of verse 4 tells us she is to order her life in quiet and godly submission to her husband because such character is very precious in the sight of God. That's who you're trying to impress. And obviously God knows the intense thoughts and intents of your heart, so you can't fool him. You can't trick him. He knows what's going on on the inside, and it should be reflected again on the outside. So keep these principles in mind, beloved. Whatever we do, whatever our role in the family is, husband, wife, child, is to be done unto the Lord, to please him and not ourselves. As we saw, Peter goes on to give that example in the Old Testament. And so we're to look, to scriptures for an example of how we are to live, how these holy men of old, these holy women of old, lived their lives. They weren't perfect. Obviously, if you're reading through any Old Testament passage, you'll see how imperfect they are. Even David was. Yet they also gave us positive examples of trusting in God and depending on him and believing that he would care for them. And husbands need to keep in mind, though we're the head of the family uh, and the wife is to submit to our authority in Christ, we are together equal and heirs together of the grace of life. 
And if we expect our prayers to be heard, then we better be submitting to God's will, which is to care for our wives and to love them. Domestic tranquility is the result of humble, godly submission on the wife's part and sincere, honest respect and loving care on the husband's part. May God direct us into these truths today for his glory and for the benefit of our families. Let's pray.